warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica and as always I'm joined by my favorite gal pal Tara. Hey spooksters. Today we are doing the final installment of The Lost Women of Highway 20. This is a great documentary on HBO Max. If you have not watched it yet, I highly recommend it. I don't know. It's just, it was really good. It kept my attention. And one of the things I will say is it's like, it's real heavy in the content, like what you're watching. I'll be honest, there's a lot of triggers, but it's done in such a respectful way to victims. Yeah. So it's like easier to watch than a lot of documentaries that are like exploitive of victims. And I don't know how, but Octavia Spencer is somehow involved with this. And I need to know, I need to Google that and find out why and how, because apparently she did some sort of like chat about it. I love her. Love that. I do too. Okay, so we're on episode three, and this kind of like enters into a different era in John's life. So John is no longer in that little junction that he was in. He's been moved to a bigger town, and bigger town, it was like, it was an actual town, not just a bunch of houses near each other, which is what it was before. But what I thought was really interesting is they were like, you know, everyone hung out at the local Sherry's, and I was like, oh my god, I too hung out at the local Sherry's in high school. Mm-hmm. It's open late, and when I say like high school kid friendly it really was like the serving staff always kind of like watched out so when like older people were like older dudes or whoever were in there that might be a little creepy they kind of like watched out for the younger kids but it was nice it was a nice place to go you share one appetizer to like 40 people it's great love that everyone gets waters it's fine (laughs) i would bring enough money so that i could get a milkshake i didn't share it i was like fuck you guys this is my milkshake hell no I'd be like, give me half the money for it. Thanks. So they're in this like this little small town, Corveris. And basically the thing to do is not only just hang out at Sherry's, but it's also to be on a CB radio, which is just like a weird thing in my mind. This is also in like the 90s. So this was before cell phones. So really, actually, this these girls, these this whole group of people were like, we got the shit locked in. As long as we're in our, on our car, we can communicate wherever we're going. And they all had like their own handles. Like one was like bunny the girl that they interview her name was like miss know-it-all they all had their own handles now there are two girls in particular that we'll focus on kim was the one who was miss know-it-all but she's a friend of the two individuals whose name were melissa sanders and sheila swanson and they were like young girls they were kind of wild in the fact that they were like they were just always looking for a good time and, you know, what I just kind of found it interesting that it was like their families just were like, cool, like they're going to run around and do their own thing. Granted, it was the 90s. So 
people were a little more trusting back then of other people. Yeah, for sure. The girls would like basically like run around and do whatever they wanted. They often would leave home, but their parents always said no matter what, when they left home, they'd always call and let them know where they were going. So they would take off for a time. And they were high schools. They were students. Like they were like kids, like 15, 16 year olds. They would like hang out at Sherry's and this guy started showing up and he also had a CB radio and they knew his name was John, but he went by the pervert. So gross. Just such a weird fucking name to go by. Literally. Like what the fuck? You're literally advertising. Mm -hmm. So he would come into Sherry's when the girls were there and he was really like super into Melissa. Sheila was kind of like the background noise to him, if that makes sense. Like she was kind of like the package deal, but he would like buy Melissa food and like sit like he'd buy her nachos and she'd sit there and he would like put his hand on her leg and like feed her. Or like Kim said, like one time she got like sour cream on her face and he like took his finger and like wiped it off and then licked it. I was like, no one ever do that to me. Uh -uh. So basically they were just like hanging out, doing the thing and Melissa and them were just, you know, they basically would do whatever he wanted. Now, I'm just going to run down the storyline of them, and then I'll go back because it kind of interweaves, and this is just how my brain is working today. So then this had been happening for a few months, and then it was, like, in the summertime, and, like, Melissa's family was like, hey, we're going to Newport, which is, like a coastal town and we're going camping. Melissa and Sheila, Sheila was going with her and they were like, okay, we're all gonna, we're gonna go and be at this campground. And John was like, oh, what campground? She's like, well, we don't know, but it's somewhere in Newport, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, that's funny. I'm throwing a party in Newport this weekend on Saturday. And the girls were like, oh my God, how cool is that? Well, hmm. It was cool, I guess. I don't know. I don't think it was, but the girls were really interested in going. Kim had said to them, like, hey, whatever you do, don't hook up with this guy. Like, and they're like, no, no, we won't. But it was kind of like that, like, no, no, we won't, but we are going to. And like, Kim was really like maternal to the girls. Like, if they needed food or a place to like shower, put their makeup on, do their laundry, that was kind of what Kim provided them, a kind of a refuge. So she was like trying to mom them and be like, please don't go hook up with this guy. The girls go to the family reunion in Newport and they're there and then about Saturday they're like we just we want to go we want to leave and her cousins Melissa's cousins are like okay they and they basically found someone to come get them someone came and like picked them up and then they were supposed to come back out to Newport and then they didn't and then when people got home they were like where the fuck are they they're not here and so that's when like Melissa and Sheila's parents started getting worried because they had been gone for so long and hadn't communicated because again they would run away they would go do their own and I don't even want to say run away I just want to say they would like take off for time periods but they would always tell like call and say hey this is where we're at this is what we're doing and they hadn't the police were like whatever like they do it like unfortunately when there's a pattern of a runaway and finite police resources, often those individuals who are missing go to like the bottom of the pile because they're like, they'll turn back up eventually. Not always. A lot of times we see that they don't. They hadn't been found. They were really trying. I can't give the ending of this away because it kind of ties into something else, but, but their bodies would be discovered like much later. So basically, after the whole Rashonda case, they were like, okay, we need to get our shit together. And there was kind of like a new like DA and he had come in and basically he had turned to this like one younger like detective and was like, hey, I need you to be in charge of everything with the Rashonda case, right? And also 
I need you to also handle all of John Aykroyd's files. So anything with him on it, you need to like be in charge of. Well, this guy, his name is Will McNulty. He basically goes through and realizes that Camp Sherman, Camp Sherman has like information that they don't have. So he goes and gets it all and he compiles it chronologically. And this is where he starts seeing like the anomalies of it. So one of the things is is that if you remember from the last episode, we talked about a man by the name of Roger Beck and he had a wife named Pam. Now, Pam was the alibi for Roger and and John that day. And wouldn't you know that in this however many years, I think at this point it was like 13 years, Pam and Roger had gotten divorced and she moved to California. So Will packs up, drives, I, I assume he flew. I don't know why I said drive. Like <laughs> He goes to California and he basically interviews Pam. She meets him at the door and was like, I knew you were coming and I hella lied back then. She lied so much. And she basically tells the story that, you know, it's Christmas Eve and Roger and John come back and they're covered in blood. And she's freaking out. And basically they're like, we ran over a jogger. We accidentally killed a jogger. And then we kind of like hid the body in the woods. But then she's like overhearing them talk about the fact that like they had shot her and stabbed her and blah, 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 all this shit. And basically Roger threatened her. Like, if you don't provide us this alibi, I'm going to hurt you. So when the cops came a knocking, she told them what Roger told her to tell. But now that her and Roger are no longer together, she's like, here are the beans, let me spill. Now that Pam has like said, hey, they have a case now because of the fact that the alibi is blown. And they do bring up charges on against John and ultimately Roger. Um, he was arrested in 1992, so two years after the disappearance of Rashonda, and he went to court. Even though they were like, hey, here's all the reasons why John did this, his defense was like, no, he didn't do it. They didn't prove it. That's all it was really the defense. To me, this would be really hard. Like, I don't know if they, like, they didn't talk about this in the, in the documentary, but I started thinking about the fact that, like, you know, when we talk about, like, the Scott Peterson case, how they had to move it out of Modesto because of, like, the saturation of media on this. Like, everybody in the fucking area of Camp Sherman, all of those people, they knew John did this. I mean, I guess 13 years, you may get people who've moved into the area that don't know, but... I'm pretty sure it was probably talked about it. Like, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like when we were at dinner that night, we were talking about people who would go to like small town diners every like morning for breakfast. Like, you know, this came up at least once a week. Oh, for sure. I have a feeling they had like a John, um, a John sighting. Like, oh, I saw John the other day. Because mind you, his job since like 70, early 78 is literally maintenance on roads where he's driving hundreds of miles a day. Like when he got moved to, in the last episode, when he got moved to that new town uh, to work, Mm -hmm. his boss was like, he would drive like 190 miles a day. Like, how was I supposed to fucking supervise that? I was like, oh, fair point, sir. So basically, he's puts on trial and he is sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole. And Roger is also sentenced to 15 years for his involvement because of basically, I think he kind of like turned on John and was like, I was just there. I, I got sucked in. Now, in 2012, basically, they were trying, he was up for parole because he 
he had it was parole within 20 years. So they basically went to him and said, look, if you tell us where Rashonda's body is, we'll let you have Christmas with your family. We'll let your family come and you guys can have a big Christmas dinner. And he was like, no, thank you. None, thank you. And basically they kept pushing and they kept pushing and I'm not quite sure, but basically he wouldn't, he wouldn't budge and he wouldn't make any deals. But in the Rashonda case, he actually would take a no plea contest, meaning that like, he's not saying he's guilty, but he's not saying he's innocent. And, you know, Byron was like in the court that day and then they like immediately sealed the court cases, which is fucking unheard of. It's typically a public record. So basically what I understand, according to this, is that he put in this plea of no contest so that he wouldn't have to go to trial for her murder, for Rashonda's murder, but he had to give up the right for parole, which is like a such a weird thing. So like everybody knows that John killed Rashonda, but like he's not actually serving time for her crime. He's serving time for the Kate Turner, but he can't get parole now. Like, that's the thing. Not that I think people were going to ever let his ass out, but you never know. Weird, Weirder shit has happened. Right. And that was also the other thing. The detective was, like, really leaning on him and was like, look, like, we know about the other bodies. And he was like, what other bodies? And he was like, there's no other bodies. Now, because of the fact that John worked on the literally for the road department and he was on the road all of the time. Yeah. Obviously, we know about Marilyn, who was the first known victim, who was the rape victim. And then we have Kay Turner and then we have Rashonda and then Sheila and Melissa as well. There were other women that were like associated with him that could potentially be his victims. So there were two Jane Doe's that were also like contributed. They were found in specific areas along his route, as well as a woman by the name of Elizabeth Molsler, who she disappeared when she was 22 and she was found in like a shallow grave. There was a couple other teenagers who disappeared. Um, Their names were Karen Lee and Rodney Grissom. They were 15 and 14 and they had run away from home and they were like trying to get to California. Basically the last time anyone had known of where they were was right outside of like one of the towns that John worked in. And it was in 1977. They kind of think that there are a bunch of other people out there that the woods around this highway, because it's very dense wood. Jennifer tells in like the third episode, she talks about the fact that like, because Jennifer is Rashonda's cousin. She says that like one time they went driving on this like back road. Basically the brush was like coming straight up to like the truck. And he had said to her, like, you know, you could just hide a body out here. Like no one would ever find it. And asked her if she needed to go to the bathroom. She was like, no. But he went and went to the bathroom and then came back. And she was like, she knew in her heart of hearts that if she had gotten out of that car, she would have died. Oh, for sure. It's just really an interesting thought because, like, basically we'll never truly know how many victims John had and whatnot because of the fact that the, they point out in the documentary, like, he worked road service. And so like, and it's a state vehicle. So if like you're a woman parked on the side of the road and it doesn't even have to be a woman, it could be also be a man parked on the side of the road. And you see this truck that says like, you know, property of whatever state, like Oregon, whatever. Right. You're going to think they're trustworthy. Yeah. Right. Because they're employed by the state. And then all of a sudden they're attacking you. And then 
You know, this is the 70s, 80s, and 90s. People didn't have cell phones. The technology wasn't there. So it wasn't like you could track someone. So a lot of people did just go missing. Yeah. Or they would say like, oh, they got lost in the woods or some shit like that happened. The potential for victims is enormous because you could have people who are just traveling. They might not tell someone they're on that road. And the fact that when Marlene gets in his truck, he has that thing like unscrewed. You can't tell me that was his first time. Right. No way. Mm -mm. His truck was set up to like capture someone. It makes me sad that we'll never know the amount of victims he had and the families won't get justice. But I am glad he's behind bars and that he can't get out because of his parole. Yeah, for sure. One of the most beautiful things is like Byron has children and just like how he has chosen to raise his kids and like how Rashonda's friends have also chosen to raise their kids is to be like fierce advocates for them. So there is a silver lining You know, the survivors of this have really kind of put that out there. So it was a great documentary. I would not have known about these cases. But with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off. And we will be back another episode on Monday. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.